All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Thanks, appreciate it. Hey, I'm about to throw a lot of stuff at you, and this is the longest sermon out of the four I've had, just for you to get a heads up in case you got a, something in the crock pot, but I mean, not like way long, but just, I'm going to test your patience with me this morning, but we're going to continue to talk about our series on the great taboo where we are studying the topic of sex. And we began the very first week with just kind of a foundational and some introductory points that were important, especially in regards to how everything that I'm saying, you are going to filter through your own life stories, and that is a normal thing. And after that, we moved on to talk about how God's created order, by design, includes sex and sexuality. It is our biological makeup to be sexual, and this was by God's design. And then what does it say then about our God if he were to place those things within us only in the end to condemn us for it? And then we moved on to the second week with the uh, idea of what does Jesus have to say about sex? And so we took a look at every single thing Jesus says about sex throughout the Gospels. And when you do that, if you read all the words of Jesus, what you'll note is really there's only two passages in the entire teaching of Jesus that directly relates to sex. One is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and one is in Matthew chapter 15, both dealing with the condition of our hearts. And we also that week talked about the definitions of words like lust and sexual immorality. And then what we noted is overall Jesus really de-emphasizes sex and marriage and relationships because the kingdom of God is breaking in on the earth. And because of that and his driving vision and focus, who has time to talk about those sorts of things? And then last week, We talked about the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi in regards to its teachings on sex. And we discovered compared to the totality of the Old Testament, which is three-fourths of our Bible, it too has very little to say about sex. That if you were to read from Genesis to Malachi, you would see that male sexuality is a reality that should probably have some limits placed upon it. And those limits seem to largely be in economic terms, not moralistic. And for you ladies in the house, female sexuality is at least by concern almost non-existent in the Old Testament. And the reason why is because in the Old Testament, women are viewed as property. Now, I'm not saying that's how we should view them, but that's the perspective from the Old Testament, either property of their father or by their husband. And that's what makes application of things in the Old Testament very difficult in 2015, especially given the fact that we do not believe women are property. Men, could you give me an amen? I sound a little wishy-washy, man. I don't, I don't know. I just sound like a little weak. But then out of nowhere, you do have one book in the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon. And it's all about and in praise of sex and pleasure. It's a love song with two characters moving towards each other in erotic love and delighting in one another's bodies. And there's nothing like it in the uh, the whole of Scripture. But it would also be the clearest affirmation and celebration of sex that you will find in the whole of the Bible. Now, that's just a quick summary of where we've been over the last couple of weeks, and everything I just said took a lot of time to unpack, and so what I would say is uh, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast, especially if you've missed any of the weeks. But even if you listen to it, you should go back and listen to it again because I've had the experience now over several weeks of hearing other people quote what they thought that they heard me saying and in it thinking, huh? <laughs> like, no, whoa, I did not say that. So it would be good for everybody just to 
it's, this topic is big enough, it's large enough, it's complex enough, and important enough that I think another thorough hearing would not be out of order. Now, the assignment we have today is to take a look at everything that the Apostle Paul has to say about sex. And the reason why this message is a little bit longer is because Paul talks about sex more than anyone else in the Bible. And so, by the end of this morning, you will have read everything that Paul says about sex. And in it, we have been shaped by Paul's thoughts on sex, or at least our assumptions about Paul's teachings, and probably anyone else in Scripture. And so it is very important that we take a look at Paul and what he is addressing and saying in these matters. Now, I mentioned last week that the original intent of the series was to be four weeks, but because I'm so long-winded, uh, I've kind of extended it one more week. And so we'll, we'll finish up Paul this week, and the next week we will put it all together and ask, in light of all that we have read and studied in regards to sex as it is taught in the Bible, what do we do about that in 2015? To understand Paul's teachings on sex, you need to begin first by understanding Paul and the context in which he is writing. And these are always essential elements of good Bible study. In fact, there's a fancy word for this. You may may have heard this word. It's called exegesis. And what exegesis is attempting to do is trying to figure out what did Paul mean when he said this and what would his original audience hear and understand when they read it. And it's an attempt to put the puzzle pieces, and they really are puzzle pieces together to their particular situation and culture, and then attempt to see exactly what was happening and exactly what Paul was responding to. And this is very critical for us. Otherwise, we will interpret and apply things that are totally off base in regards to anything that Paul might have meant in his original context. So let's begin with Paul himself. Paul was a first century Jewish man. He was born a Jew, but actually was born as a Jew, as a free Roman citizen in the city of Tarsus, which would today be in modern-day Turkey. So the Apostle Paul was born in modern-day Turkey. In, in Paul's day, though, his, his hometown was the capital city of the Roman province, Cilicia, and it was a major trading center. Now, I said that only to say in his early years, he would have quite a bit of exposure to the Roman Empire being from Tarsus. He would say about himself as a Jew, though, listen to this, Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Talking about himself, he says, listen, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, I am a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, listen to this, righteous, based on, what does he say about himself? Faultless. Paul would brag in other letters as well about the reality that You can't find a better Jew than me. At an early age, he was sent to Jerusalem to study and train under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. And he was fully immersed into Judaism, and that is the culture and context he would find his thoughts and his worldview. And the miracle of Paul's story is his conversion to accepting Jesus of Nazareth as the legitimate Messiah of Israel and then committing the rest of his life to spreading that message. And miracle on top of miracle, it was actually Paul, this fantastic Jew, who was actually sent by God to spread the message of Jesus to the Gentiles throughout the Roman world. Now, why is this important? It's because when Paul writes his letters, he does not somehow lose his identity. He will still write as a first century Jewish man. 
And this goes back to our view of Scripture. We believe, or at least I do, that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. But by that, I don't mean that the Scripture is word for word dictated by God, where Paul just had pen and paper in hand and God said, write this, and then gave him word for word. God does not trump Paul's personality, his style of writing, his grammar, his perspective, or even his worldview. Paul will write as a first century Jewish man. And this is extremely important to understand. He does not lose his first century worldview. He does not lose his Jewish identity, and he doesn't become genderless. He does not morph into some larger cosmic and mythical revealer of truth. He remains Paul, an apostle of Jesus, but also a first century Jewish man. Thus, it wouldn't surprise and shouldn't surprise anyone in the room if Paul never had a bacon lettuce tomato sandwich. Right? Not because he didn't understand that he was free to do so, but because it had bacon on it. Because in every way, Paul was born and bred a Jew. Now, the second thing, which is important to note, is that when it comes to sex, Paul never, ever sits down and just tries to write out a systematic teaching on sex. And what I mean by that is he never proactively says to himself, hey, you know what, I should give some sort of teaching on sex. So he just sits down from beginning to end and talks about it. Anytime Paul does talk about sex, it is always in reaction and response to what he sees and experiences in the churches that he founded and that he led. Now, this doesn't invalidate Paul's teachings, but we must note that they are always reactionary. He is responding to situations that are taking place and thus trying to provide instruction based on those particular pastoral situations. And this makes it all the more important then that we go back and try to figure out, well, what are those situations? Like, what are the things that Paul is responding to? And third, I don't think it's insignificant to point out that Paul himself says about himself, I have a God-given gift of celibacy. Don't you know about Paul? Like, he's totally content not having sex, not wanting sex, being unmarried and single. This is God's gift to Paul. He'll say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, now that that he says, I say this as a concession, not as a command, which I think is an interesting phrase, isn't it? Think about that for just a moment. The Apostle Paul is saying, I'm not giving you a commandment here. This is just a concession. And what he's doing, he's just offered all this advice on sex and marriage and relationships. And then he'll move on to verse 7 by saying, but I wish that you all were as I am. But each of you, you have your own gifts from God, and one has this gift, another has that. What he's referring to is the celibacy. Verse 8, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. And as a dude, meaning me now, who does not have the gift of celibacy, it is a challenge to think that a guy who is helping inform my sexuality isn't even interested in it. And for those of you who grew up in a Catholic tradition, I'm sure you might have felt the oddity from time to time of receiving advice on matters of sex, relationship, and marriage from a priest or a nun. Not that they couldn't speak into it or have any authority, but it feels a little bit strange. Like, how do you even know? Like, you don't know. You have, like... Another factor, though, that we need to know about Paul, and this is very important when he talks about sex, is in his own mind and thinking, he really does believe that Jesus is going to come back at any moment. Like, he has no idea that it's going to be over 2,000 years. He begins with really believing that at any moment, in fact, he expects that Jesus is going to return. We call that as the imminent return of Jesus here on earth. And because of that, that shapes his ethics and his thinking about things like sex and marriage and relationships. In light of Jesus' very soon arrival, why in the world would you even worry about getting married now or having sex or relationships? Jesus is coming back. And because of that, 
the present order of things are about to be done away with. So just stay in whatever situation you find yourself. That will be Paul's continual theme. In fact, it, let me read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 so you can see this. I'm going to begin in verse 17. It says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them to, just as God has called them. So whatever you were when you became a Christian, just stay there. Like, if you're married, stay married. If you're unmarried, stay unmarried. Like, this is what Paul's point is. This is the rule that I lay down in all the churches. So Paul's going around at all the churches laying down this rule that however you met Jesus, just stay in that particular spot. Verse 18, was a man already circumcised when he was called? Well, then he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He shouldn't try to change that to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. See that refrain over and over again? Were you a slave when you were called? Well, don't let that trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, you should do so. But for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord, that's okay. You're now the Lord's free person. Similarly, those of you who are free, guess what? You're now Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins. Walt, do I get another amen? No? Okay. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, which is the eminent return of Jesus, I think that's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released from it. Are you free from such a commitment? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. (laughs) And I just want to spare you from that. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, which I tried and that didn't work out too well. (laughs) Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if they were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs and how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. Mm -hmm. And his interests then are divided. By the way, this is why priests of the Catholic Church are unmarried. Like this very passage is kind of some of the background behind it. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. Amen. I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong that he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should go ahead and get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, well, this man also does the right thing. So then, whoever marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. And in my judgment, she is happier if she just stays as she is. And I think I, too, have the Spirit of God. Okay, that's, you see Paul's thinking here? Hey, Jesus is about to come back. And in light of that, just stay where you're at, okay? Don't be anxious. Just stay where you're at. 
It is undeniable, as you read Paul, to see that he really does believe that singleness and celibacy is the superior route. And marriage and sex is for the weak. <laughs> it's the tone of, I guess if you can't control yourselves, then go ahead. But really? And why does Paul think this? Because he thinks Jesus is coming back at any moment. He just doesn't quite understand why Christians then, in light of that, would be so caught up in issues of sex, marriage, and relationships. If you're weakling and can't control yourself, I guess it's better for you to marry. But in this point, in terms of Jesus' imminent return, Paul is wrong. And he still is. It has been over 2,000 years, and Jesus has not returned yet. Now, one important point here is that you'll note, as you read the letters of Paul, by the time you get to his latter letters, like when he gets older, he begins to sink in. You know what? I don't think Jesus might be coming back as soon as I thought. And he'll begin to address that. He'll say, like, to, uh, in First Timothy and Titus, he'll start to put structures in terms of church leadership because he recognizes you have to go the long haul. Like, the church might have to go the long haul, and you ought to put these things in place. None of that's in his earlier letters. He'll say to the, in Second Thessalonians, you know what? You might not want to quit your day job and keep working because it might be a while. So you'll start to see him shift in his thoughts by the end of his life and, and ministry. But then the last thing uh, we will say about Paul specific is he's a missionary. We know he was sent to Jerusalem and he grew up immersed in the culture of Judaism. And we don't know really how much exposure he had to the Roman Empire. And I would say none. I mean, he, he was born in Tarsus. But undoubtedly, he had to deal with some amount of culture shock. His missionary strategy was to go into the very heart of the Roman Empire, into the largest and most metropolitan areas of the empire. He would go to cities like Rome and Corinth, and Thessalonica, and Athens, and Philippi, and Ephesus. We're not talking about like rural, backwoods, redneck parts of the Roman Empire. We're talking about like the largest and most important cities in the empire. And they would look very much like large cities do today in New York, and Las Vegas, and San Francisco, and Los Angeles, and Amsterdam. And I'm sure there has to be some sort of shock from going from the immersion of his Jewish culture in the streets of Jerusalem and Judea to the very heart of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, especially when it comes to sex. That the practices of the, at large of the Roman Empire be far more explicit and open than anything he was used to in Judea. And to some level, there would be culture shock involved. As it is for really, even today, any missionary who leaves their home and settles in a new location, in a new language, new customs, new food, new worldview, new values, and new societal norms, they're going to suffer culture shock. And I'm not saying that sex and sexual morality wouldn't be found in Judea and Galilee, but it wouldn't be as openly expressed or accepted as it would be in Corinth and Ephesus. I like to think of it oftentimes like, you know, families will sometimes send their kids off to a Christian college thinking that they can't get in trouble at a Christian college. And the truth is, oh, no, you can find anything at a Christian college you can find anywhere else, like alcohol, drugs, like it is there. The difference might be, however, though, at the Christian college, a little bit more on the down low, a little hush-hush, kind of like more hidden. It's not as celebrated as if you send your kids maybe to the University of California in Berkeley. You get, that's, the, that's the difference between Jerusalem and Rome. Now, I want to talk to you about what sex was like in the Roman Empire for a moment, like their moral views of sex. And this is going to take a little bit of time, but I think it's very important because we need to know, what is Paul reacting to? And what he's reacting to is what he sees. And this is what he'll see in the Roman Empire. So, let me shift for just a moment, and let's talk about sexual ethics and morality in the Roman Empire. And in this, we actually have a lot of information. Like, archaeologists have a lot of data concerning the sexual behavior of those who lived in the empire, from paintings and frescoes and art and sculptures and literature and poems and plays and inscriptions, erotic artifacts, philosophers and historians regarding behavior, both what should be and what actually was. And what we know is sexuality was far more on display in Roman culture than what you'd find in Jewish culture. 
and sexual expression could be found all around the Roman Empire. Even when you went to the temple to worship the Roman gods, sex was part of the rituals within the temples. They actually had temple prostitutes. Now, to say that there was complete sexual license in the Roman world would probably be an exaggeration, but there is still a degree of morality, at least in the minds of philosophers and politicians. What the Romans did have in common with the Old Testament is their view of women. And it might not have been quite to the degree we saw last week where women were discussed, at least by way of the law, as property, but Roman society was very patriarchal. And what that meant was it's a man's world. And Roman free men had great latitude in regards to their sexual behaviors. And the Romans, by way of their personality and corporate makeup, they were totally into order and stability and a strong state. And laws were often passed to promote the stability of the empire. Proper understandings of everyone's role and everyone's place in society was very important. And it was believed in the Roman Empire that the basis of the empire was, in fact, a strong and solid and ordered home. They would call it the domus. And what made for a strong and solid home was a strong patriarch. The head of the house was called the paterfamilias, and everyone else ranked under him, his wife, his children, perhaps extended family, and his slaves. In fact, you'll notice, you ever notice by the time you get to the New Testament, polygamy is gone? Like last week in the Old Testament, it was all over the place. Like everybody's like multiple wives. By the time you get to the New Testament, what happened to polygamy? Like, was that because of Jesus and the church? The answer is no. It's because of the Greeks and the Romans. Like the Greeks frowned upon polygamy, and the Romans made it illegal to have more than one wife. They did leave some exceptions in some of the Jewish areas. In fact, Herod in our Bible is given an exception, but in the main, the Romans, they, did not, they thought polygamy was a threat to stability and order. And what that meant was that a paterfamilias, the head of the household, the patriarch, he could take on as many mistresses as he wanted, and he could sleep with as many slaves, both male and female, as they wanted, but the house could only have one wife to be stable and ordered. Roman religion promoted sexuality as an aspect of prosperity for the state. Prostitution was legal, it was public, and it was widespread throughout the empire, although prostitutes had to register with the state. Even within the temples of Rome, parts of rituals of religion could involve sex, including sex with a temple prostitute, which I think is probably what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which we'll get to in just a moment, where he discusses sex with a prostitute. And they'll find in Roman homes pornographic paintings, as we'd probably look at them. They were featured among the art collections in very respectable and upper-class households. It was considered natural and unremarkable for men to be sexually attracted to teenage youths of both sexes, and it was not uncommon, in fact, for older men, mature men, to find, within their, to find teenage boys and younger boys and to sleep with them. And that was condoned as long as the younger male partner was not a freeborn Roman. There was no moral censure directed at the man who enjoyed sex acts with either women or males of inferior status as long as his behaviors overall didn't reveal weaknesses and excesses, nor did they infringe on the rights and prerogatives of his masculine peers. And while uh, being effeminate was denounced, at least in political rhetoric, sex in moderation with male prostitutes or slaves was not regarded as improper or vitiating to masculinity as long as the male citizen took the active and not the receptive role. In fact, it was expected and socially acceptable for a freeborn Roman man to want sex with both female and male partners as long as he took the dominating role. 
So acceptable objects of desire were women of any social or legal status, male prostitutes or male slaves, but sexual behaviors outside of marriage were to be confined to slaves and prostitutes or less often a concubine or a kept woman. In fact, a lack of self-control, like this is like a man could do whatever he wanted to, if it was perceived that he lacked any self-control and was not able to manage his sex life, it was a sign that he seemed to be incapable of governing others, which would be a problem if he's the paterfamilias. Romans thought castration and circumcision were barbaric mutations. And so you need to think about that. If you were a Jew moving into the Roman Empire, you're circumcised. And it's hard to hide that fact when you're in the Roman public baths. And so there was actually a procedure in the first century that attempted to remove the marks of circumcision and thus to appear uncircumcised. That's why when Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, stays in the situation you're in, if you are circumcised, don't seek to be uncircumcised. There was actually a procedure in which you could do that. Now, let's talk about women for just a moment. Women's sexuality was also a great source of concern because the Roman emphasis on family, Roman sexu- female sexuality, was regarded as one of the basis for that social order and prosperity. Female citizens were expected to exercise their sexuality within marriage, and they were often honored for their sexual integrity. It was expected that as a woman you would arrive into marriage as a virgin, usually around the age of 12 to 14, which as a father of a 13-year-old is so disturbing to me. That sexuality was a core feature then even of ancient, uh, of ancient Roman slavery because slaves were regarded as property under Roman law. An owner could use them for sex or hire them out to service other people. A Roman could exploit his own slaves for sex, but he was not entitled to compel any enslaved person he chose to have sex since the owner has the right to control his own property. A slave's sexuality was closely controlled. Slaves had no right to legal marriage, though they could live together as husband and wife. But an owner usually restricted the heterosexual activity of his male slaves to his female slaves he owned because any children born to them would add then to his own personal wealth. And there's a lot more we can say about sexual ethics in the Roman Empire, but hopefully this will give you a picture of the culture of the empire and the practices found within, especially by freeborn Roman men. And this is the culture in which Paul arrives. As a first century Jewish man, don't forget, that he preaches the message of Jesus, and then he tries to figure out how to instruct those who believe in Jesus on this new sexual ethic in light of their conviction that Jesus is Lord and how that might impact their sexuality. And this leads us to ask, well, then what is Paul's sexual ethic and why? To that, we must turn directly to Paul. So let's take a look at everything Paul says now about sex. And here we go. Ready? I think if Paul had a new Christian one-on-one class dealing with sex, it might come out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, where he says this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't even know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, what I want you to see in this is a contrast is being made between Christians and pagans. And what Paul's saying is we're not going to act like them anymore. We are going to avoid sexual immorality. And the word here, again, is porneia, which we've been talking about now for weeks. It is an umbrella word, and even in this passage, Paul does not lay out for us any illustrations or examples of what exactly he means by that. But in verse 6, he does seem to indicate that our control over the body, meaning, yes, biologically you're wired like this, but you are not at the whim of your biology and your urges. 
It protects us. The point of that is it protects and keeps us from taking advantage of our fellow brothers and sisters who are in the same community of faith. Now, moving on from Thessalonians, a second grouping of passages in which Paul deals with sex can be found in his letter to the church in Ephesus that was the home of the great temple to the Roman goddess Artemis. So there's no telling what could have been happening in that temple. And here's what Paul will say to the Christians at Ephesus, chapter 4, verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Which is interesting, because what are they? They're Gentiles. In the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that, that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality and to, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now again, notice the contrast Paul is making between the norms of the Gentiles and now those who belong to Jesus. He'll do the same as he continues this letter when he gets to chapter 5, verse 3. He'll say, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. There should not be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse talking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you could be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, those persons are idolaters, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, moving on from there, what you'll see is you get to the, to the book of Galatians, and Paul will refer to sex here in regards to uh, life by the Spirit versus life in the flesh. And there's a section where he talks about all the behaviors that kind of go along with the life in the flesh, and a couple uh, topics of sex come up under here. Uh, Galatians 5.19 says, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, after the 9 o'clock service, uh, one of the families had their daughters and their young daughters, and during the sermon, one leaned over and said, what's an orgy? I said, you're welcome. Have fun at lunch. Now, you can see this list is not just about sex, and again, our word pornea comes up here, but you do see a few others listed here, like debauchery, which is close to lust and communicates excess, like going to the club on Tuesday, just kidding, and he also adds here orgies. Again, watch Paul note, they have a new life, and it should reflect a new behavior. Listen to this, Colossians 3, verses 5 to 7, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived to. Nobody says here, you used to live like that. Not anymore. You can see the same contrast in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And what you'll see is the constant theme for Paul is that your conversion to Christ also affects your sexuality. As a Gentile, you had this thought process and this attitude and these values in regards to sex, but now that you're in Jesus, your conversion also includes a new perspective on sex. You don't think or act sexually like you used to before Jesus. So don't make the mistake of thinking that your confession that Jesus is Lord somehow doesn't really include our thoughts and practice of sex. Our whole lives are now for the Lord. And then you have a passage in Romans 
where Paul is trying to make the theological point that everyone is screwed up and sinful. That's his whole point. Like He's trying to say everyone is sinful and messed up. And he's speaking to a church that is divided right along ethnic lines, Jews and Gentiles, and they're not getting along. The Jews are judging the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are smug and arrogant toward the Jews. So Paul is trying to place them all in the same boat, sinful. And it will kind of culminate in Romans chapter 3, the middle of verse 22. He'll say, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. He's trying to say to both groups, you're in the same boat. You both are sinful. Now, to get there, if you back up in Romans, he begins in chapter 1 by making a list of these are sins that would be typical in the Gentile community. And you could picture the Jewish Christians going, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, that's right, tell them, Paul. But then in chapter 2, Paul will switch, and he'll start talking about the sins that are typical of the Jewish community. You could picture the Gentiles going, yeah, that's right. And then you get chapter 3, oh, we all suck. That's what's happening here. But within the list of the Gentile community sins are some that in regards to sex. Now remember, the days of the Roman Empire, what Paul is witnessing, what he sees. Romans chapter 1 verse 24 says this, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, Even their women exchanged sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, here's just one of, there's only a couple, but just one of a handful of passages in the Bible that deals with the topic of homosexuality. And here we see Paul's thought concerning his perspective of the kind of homosexual practice that he sees taking place in the Roman Empire. And in it, it is not unclear in terms of Paul's perspective. He finds it wrong and even the cause of God's wrath. He'll say, shameful acts with other men do penalty for their error. Now, I would remind you that homosexuality was common in the Roman Empire, but it was almost always an issue of dominance and status in regards to Roman society. What I mean by that is older men with teenage boys or Roman freemen with their male slaves. And so even this idea of consent is totally lacking. There were male prostitutes, but none from the upper classes. And this is what Paul sees, and this is what he is responding to. What is non-existent for Paul is the question that is before us in 2015 in regards to the conversations of our contemporary culture about same-sex orientation with actual affections and relationships that is reciprocal, committed, and monogamous. Now, this doesn't settle the issue for us, but at least should be important to understand that it's an important issue in our conversation. And let me also say here that this is an important conversation that we need to discuss. In fact, did you know, like today, there's only 12 states that don't allow gay marriage. The Supreme Court's already taken up this issue. Maybe, be, maybe they'll be ruling even by July. And because of everything around us, we should have a thorough examination of the Scriptures. Now, the scope of this series is not to take on this particular issue, as it would easily require not only five weeks, but maybe even more. But my intent is to have a thorough conversation probably in the fall. But in a totally different context, I don't think it belongs in a sermon-type format where I do all the talking. My guess is I'm anticipating kind of a weekend, maybe a Friday night, Saturday morning study, maybe two of them, that allows not only me to talk, but for you to talk back as well. And I know that may be disappointing to some who are hoping to have this resolved here and now, but we'll get to it. More donuts, anyone? You'll also see in Romans, there'll be a lot of conversation about the sinful nature 
I don't list them all here because when Paul uses that phrase, he isn't talking about sex. I think our brains naturally go there, oh, sinful nature, sex. I mean, it might include that, but that's not his point. And yet, it's just another umbrella word. And now, finally, let's go to Corinthians. In Paul's letter in Corinthians, he says more about sex in this letter than anywhere else. And the reason is twofold. One, they're completely whack sexually. But two, they actually ask Paul questions about sex. And as we dive into 1 Corinthians, there is an overarching issue within the mindset of the Christians in the city of Corinth. Now remember, as Gentiles, they would grow up with with Gentile thinking and philosophies, one of which is a dualistic picture of reality, meaning that things that deal with the spirit and the soul are great and good. But things dealing with the body and matter and flesh are bad. In fact, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with the early Christian heresy of Gnosticism. And so the thinking, the way that it plays out practically is two very opposing and opposite ways. One, because the body really doesn't mean anything and it's really bad. You can do do it whatever you want. Like, it doesn't matter what you do, it's okay because it's just the body. And so it's a very free liberty view in terms of sexuality. To the other extreme out of that thinking is because the body and flesh and matter are inherently evil and bad, then we deny the body any pleasure whatsoever. And there's lots of rules and there's lots of commands and there's lots of things that go along those lines. Now what Paul does is he comes in and he deals with both extremes by denying them their position. And so he'll begin in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. He says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate which is amazing. Like, like even, the other, even the people around us aren't okay with this. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Right? This is Jerry Springer as it gets. And it's most likely not his, his biological, but it's probably his stepmother would be my guess. And it looks like, verse 2, and you were proud. Like the church is bragging. Like, oh, we're free. We're free in Jesus. And so, yeah, we've got a guy in our church. He's sleeping with his stepmom. No, we're all cool. It's all good. Instead, Paul's like, you should kick him out. And that's his point here. And he'll go on for several verses because of time I won't read them. But if you move on, um, let me see where I should pick up here. I'm going to go to verse 11. This poor Laura, she didn't know I was going to do this to her. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slander, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, I'm not sure what more I need to say here, but let it suffice to say that if you come into my office and and ask me for my pastoral advice on whether it's okay to sleep with your stepmom, I'm going to say, no. But what I do want you to see here is their great libertine attitude in it. They were actually proud and boasted, and Paul's response is, are you nuts? And then another issue arises in the church of Corinth, and it appears that some of the men in the church are sleeping with prostitutes. Now, again, prostitution was very common, legal and available in the Roman Empire. My guess is, however, that this isn't just simply a prostitute in a brothel, but rather a temple prostitute in the temples of Corinth, which is a double problem for Paul. If you now belong to Jesus, why in the world would you even go back to those temples? But second, and even more insane, why would you go back to the temples and sleep with a prostitute in ritualistic ceremonies? And so we'll say this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. You say, I have the right to do anything. He's quoting the Corinthians. But not everything, though, is beneficial. And he'll quote him again. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. That's that attitude of what difference does it make? It's just the body. It has needs and urges. Just fill it and move on. The body, however, Paul says, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. 
Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual morality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against the body. But whoever sin, uh, do not do you not know, verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And here in this passage, we see the heart of the matter in regards to sex. For the Gentiles, they very much consider their bodies to simply have needs and urges that should be satisfied. It's just the body. What Paul does, especially given his Jewish background, Jewish background, is bring back the idea that we are not separate from our bodies. Our bodies and our souls are intertwined and in that what happens to one happens to the other. This would be common Jewish thought. It is a holistic view of the self. We are body and mind and soul and spirit, and they are all connected, and what happens to one affects the others. And that's why Jesus will even say to us in the great command, love the Lord your God, not just with your body or your mind, but with all of it, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And thus, we do not think of our bodies as isolated parts of our true selves that just happen to have these biological urges that need to be satisfied, but rather, our bodies are us, and what we do with them thus matters. And even more so now that we belong to Jesus, because now, because of the church, we belong to Christ's body. We now take into consideration that Jesus has purchased our lives, including our bodies, and what we do with them now matters. That's why he'll say in Romans 12, verse 1, now offer your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. Other parts of Romans will tell us that we now give over our bodies not as slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 6 will affirm that our bodies are actually temples of the Holy Spirit. Body matters. And what we do with body matters. We do not take a flippant view of the body in regards to, who cares? I mean, practically, Paul is not for booty calls. It violates his thinking of body, especially one that now is in service to Jesus. And this is why Paul says here that all other sins are on the outside of his body, but sexual sins are against his own body. He's not trying to communicate that sexual sins are worse than other sins, only that when body and self are tied together, this matters. And how Paul does this is to appeal back to the creation narrative with this phrase, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Jesus did the same thing in his teachings on marriage and divorce, but what Paul is saying is that there is a life-giving and life-bonding dynamic that takes place in sex. There is no such thing as casual sex for Paul even if it might be our own experience, and I do not even deny that. But at least in Paul's theology, sex is what binds and seals covenant. And the language of, and the two shall become one flesh, is his premise behind it. And that's why you don't sleep with prostitutes and you don't sleep with your stepmom. Now, if I could speak a word to popular evangelical Christianity, that in an effort to try to get people to you know, remain pure and, and don't have sex outside of marriage, they kind of appeal to this the two shall become one flesh. And sometimes we use language that's so mystical and ethereal. I mean, sex is the intertwining of two isolated and lonely souls into one perpetual mystical union that connects the inwardmost part of our being to, to which I want to say, okay, calm down. All it says is the two shall be one flesh. What exactly that means is still unclear, but we don't need to go all Nicholas Sparks in our language to make sex something that it isn't. It leads to very conscientious Christians and wondering if somehow because they had messed up and had sex with their first boyfriend, are they mystically and in the eyes of God really married to their first boyfriend? To which the answer is no. And then finally, we come to the 1 Corinthians 7. Now, we read most of 1 Corinthians 7, but just the very beginning is what I'm going to touch here. And this is in response to questions that they've actually asked Paul. So verse 1, 
Now, for the matters you wrote about, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Like they're asking him, is it good for a man not to have sex anymore? He says, but since sexual morality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband and in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and just for a time so you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now I say this as a concession, not as a command. In fact, I wish that you all were like I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, you hear this behind it, then they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. And to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a, has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And what that means, I have no idea. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, it is often asked, where in the Bible does it directly say that sex outside of marriage is wrong or premarital sex? And the answer is, it doesn't, at least not directly. But we do have here, by way of inference, here in 1 Corinthians 7, that that is in fact what Paul thinks. The question is, now that we are in Christ, is it best for a man not to have sex anymore? Paul's answer would be, yes. But because the reality of sexual morality or pernea, I mean, if you have to have sex, it's best for you to get a wife. And here we see that Paul considers singleness superior in marriage for the weak. But even in marriage and against the severe asceticism of the body, he does go on to say, don't deprive your spouse. Your body does not belong to just you, but to your husband. And husbands, your bodies belong to your wife as well, which, by the way, in that patriarchal society would be a very profound and unique understanding. If you do abstain, it has to be by mutual consent and just for a season. But the principle for Paul is, if you're going to burn with passion, get married. Now, with all due respect to Paul, I have seen the consequence of terrible marriages with all of their pain, suffering, and heartache, followed by divorce and the consequences to individuals, families, children, friendship, groups, money. And I would say to you as your pastor, horniness is a terrible reason to get married. That's probably not been said from the pulpit before here. (laughs) But I too believe I have the Spirit of Christ. I would remind us that as Paul is giving his advice in 1 Corinthians 7, he fully anticipates that Jesus is about to return at any moment. And I would be personally curious, if we were to write him a letter today on these matters, what he might say. And here we have the teachings of Paul on sex. And hopefully you're able to place these teachings within the larger framework of Paul himself and also the Roman Empire. And in it, you can appreciate that it is a challenge now to ask, so what do you do with that in 2015? And to that, that's where we will go next week as we wrap up this entire series, praise God, and ask what kind of people ought we to be in light of the teachings of Jesus and the Bible as a whole when it comes to sex. Now in a moment,